You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. I know that me and my family spent a large portion of yesterday after the Buckeyes blow out uh, raking leaves, and so it's that time of year. Um, I think today's supposed to be actually even nicer, but I hope you do have a, are having a good weekend, and we'll continue to have one today. Um, as Chris said, we are going to continue on in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and one of the things we're going to be discussing uh, this morning is this area, this emotion of fear. And I don't know about you, but I, I think fear is one of the most powerful emotions that you and I possess as human beings. In fact, I would maybe even go a step farther, and I would argue that fear is probably the most powerful emotion we have outside of maybe the fear or the emotion of love. Now, the reason I think fear is so powerful is because it affects not only what we think, but it affects what we do. It affects our actions. And sometimes because of that, uh, fear can cause us to make unwise decisions, or it can cause us to get our priorities and our perspectives a little out of whack. Uh, one, one author I read this week said fear, described fear this way, as an overwhelmingly disturbing force of the human mind, fear has the power to sway, distort, and rupture the conventions of the human psyche. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, in here watch your TV through some sort of streaming service like Hulu or Sling TV or something like that, but if you do... One of the things about them that can be annoying is that they they show literally the same commercial like 20 different times. And so in the course of one episode, you may have to watch the same commercial over and over again. And and there was one that recently I uh, kept seeing. And uh, I actually didn't mind, though, because it was pretty clever. And and it it deals with this area of fear. And it deals with the power of fear, fear and its ability to cloud your judgment and cause you to make unwise decisions. And so uh, I want to share this with you now. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. I don't know if you heard that. The last part's my favorite part. One of the girls yells, let's head for the cemetery. (laughs) Um, You see, again, the idea here is that fear is powerful. And what we're going to see in our passage today as we go through it is that actually there are two ways to read that statement, that statement that fear is powerful. You see, there's a negative way to read that and to understand that statement, but there's also a positive way. And the thing that makes the difference, whether it's negative or positive, in your life is who or what you fear. And so let's jump into this passage now. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 12. We'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, If you need to borrow a pew Bible, it's found on page 871. But, But once you get there, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment together to gather together in your name, to come together as one body, Lord, to, uh, to enter into your presence. And Lord, I just pray that you, by the power of the Spirit, would come this morning, you'd give us eyes to see, you'd give us ears to hear, and you'd give us hearts to know you. And we ask that now in Jesus' name, amen. You can, you can be seated. Okay, so last week, Pastor Chris walked us through the end of chapter 11, and, and what we looked at in that uh, end of chapter 11 was a, a major clash which occurred between the Pharisees and Jesus. And within that clash, Jesus just straight up calls out and rebukes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their inconsistency. And in fact, one of my favorite parts, which uh, we didn't really get into too much last week, was when uh, Jesus was in the midst of this, in the midst of rebuking the Pharisees. One of the religious lawyers who was there uh, is like, Jesus, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus is like, oh yeah? You're, you're, you're offended now? And then he launches in and starts rebuking the religious lawyers as well. And so again, what we saw last week was that Jesus has, has started to go toe-to-toe with the religious leaders. And as a result, things are beginning to heat up between them. In fact, chapter 11 ends uh, by saying this in verse 53. As he, Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And so certainly the tension and the opposition to Jesus is beginning to rise at this point. And so now as we turn to chapter 12, what we see is that Jesus very intentionally, I think, pulls his disciples away in order to instruct and to teach them. And to help them, I think, even process the conflict that they have begun to witness between himself and the religious authorities. And the way that it's laid out here is there's these three little sections of teaching. And and in each section, there is a series of warnings and encouragements. And so let's just walk through each of these now, starting with the first section, verses 1 to 3. Again, verse 1 says this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say, To his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so the scene that Luke paints here is very interesting, and I think it's not insignificant. 
So here is Jesus. He's still very much at the height of his popularity. Like Luke literally is telling us that there are thousands and thousands of people there, so much so that they are actually trampling one another, trying to get close to Jesus. And yet it's in that backdrop of, of the crowds, but also in the backdrop of Jesus clashing with the religious leaders, that Jesus takes this moment here to warn and instruct his disciples. And I think he's wanting to do that because he doesn't want his disciples to be deceived by this moment of popularity that they're currently enjoying. Because Jesus knows that, that his popularity and that, that, that the fame that they're enjoying will not last. He knows that opposition and persecution are in his future, and it's also in their future. And so again, he's taking this time to warn and encourage them. And the first thing he says is, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, leaven during Jesus' day was a, often used as a symbol of corruption. It was a symbol of sin. Now, last week, Chris showed us that the Pharisees were blinded by religion, they were self-deceived. They were concerned with outward appearances and outward actions, but they were not concerned with inward motivations that are, are motivated by a genuine love for God. And so here is Jesus now, out of love and concern for his own disciples, and he's warning them to not be influenced by the Pharisees, by both their teaching and their actions. I mean, he's just very explicit. He says, beware of them because of their hypocrisy. And I think the whole idea with this word picture of, of leaven or yeast is that there's something about religious hypocrisy which has the power to permeate a whole community. It just begins to spread. As it, as it infiltrates a community, it begins to spread to others in the same way that leaven permeates a loaf of bread. And so I think Jesus here is wanting to give them this warning, this word picture to help them understand that they should be on their guard, that they shouldn't be overly impressed with these religious leaders. And then he follows up this warning by offering an encouragement in verses 2 and 3. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, you might be thinking uh, right now, are you sure that's an encouragement? Because that sounds a lot more like a warning. Well, I think all of that depends on how you are living your life right now. You see, if you're living a life of integrity, a life that is free from hypocrisy, free from duplicity, then this isn't a scary warning. But rather, it could be an encouraging promise. Now, in saying that, I'm not suggesting that that means you have to live a perfect life, a, a sinless life. But what I am saying is that you're not living a double life. A life that looks one way in front of people, but looks very different behind closed doors. You see, if you're living a double life, a life that is full of hypocrisy, then these two verses are scary. They are a warning. Because what Jesus is saying here is that eventually, in the end, in the future, all will be revealed. We will all be seen for who we really are. I mean, essentially what he is warning here or what he is saying is that hypocrisy won't work. And hypocrisy won't work because in the end, it will be exposed. However, though, if, if you are living a, a consistent life, if you're living an, a life, again, that's not free from sin or that's perfect, but where you're open and honest about your struggles, where you're inviting others into that to help keep you accountable, then these verses could encourage you. 
Because again, when everything is revealed, when those closed doors are finally opened, in that moment, you will reveal that you had nothing to reveal. You see, it's been kind of crazy in the office the last couple of months because quite a few of us on staff have been getting these really threatening emails. And the emails basically uh, say, uh, your computers have been hacked or your computer has been hacked and uh, we have been watching you for months. In fact, we've been spying on you and we have seen all of the filth that you have been watching and we've, you know, we've even got video of you watching inappropriate stuff and doing inappropriate things and that unless you pay us $1,000 in Bitcoin, which I still don't know what Bitcoin is, but unless you do that, we are going to release this video and expose you to the world. And I've gotten a couple of those in the last month. Poor Louise got one recently. And, uh, and yet the reason they're not scary and the reason I'm not worried is because I know I've not been doing the things they claim that I've been doing. I know that they don't have video of me doing, again, these, uh, these horrible things. But, um, and just in case you're worried, our, our IT department has looked into them. We don't have any viruses. They're just emails phishing for trying to find people who will pay them, I guess, and they're coming from places like Ukraine and Eastern Europe and wherever else. Um, but again, my point here is that the reason I'm not afraid of them revealing something is because there's nothing to reveal. Whereas for someone like the Pharisees, someone who is living a life where they are different in private than they are in public, you should be worried. Because whether it happens in this life or in the life to come, it is going to be shown it is going to be revealed that you were living a double life, that you're living a life that, again, is full of hypocrisy. And really, I think if we think about that, that, too, is an encouragement because it's easy, I think, to, to lose heart when, when you uh, see someone who is in a position of power and, and everyone, they fold everyone, everyone thinks that they're wonderful, everyone thinks that they are, are great, whereas somehow you know that, that deep down that they are a, hip, a hypocrite. You somehow have knowledge that they are not living the way that they, they present themselves. And yet they've fooled the majority of people. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, whether it's with a, a coworker or a family member or whatever, um, these words from Jesus are encouraging. Because it means that one day, the truth will be exposed. They will be exposed. I mean, the last couple of years have been really, really painful with the whole Me Too movement. And certainly the church at large has had horrible things come out as well in this regard. In fact, just this week, a, a very popular Christian comedian has been accused of sexual misconduct, which he has admitted to uh, at least part of what he's being accused of. And so again, the church has not been immune to this, and as a result, there's been a lot of hypocrisy exposed recently. But what we've seen with all of this the last couple of years is that it's not just the church, it's literally everywhere in our society, from places like sports to politics to the entertainment world. And it's just produced these really strange moments where, you know, like a moment where you have a guy like Matt Lauer grilling Bill O'Reilly on TV about Bill O'Reilly's sexual misconduct. Meanwhile, Lauer, as it comes out a few months later, is horrifically guilty of the same thing. In fact, I think worse. And so there's no doubt that, that even though in, in light of that, with the Me Too movement, that there is still a lot that has not yet been exposed or revealed. And yet what Jesus is telling us here in this passage is that ultimately, in the end, no one gets away with it. No one is able to hide or keep secrets forever. 
And so these are some warnings and some encouragements that we see here in this first section. But let's move on now and look at the second section, starting in verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, what we see here in verses 4 and 5 is a very serious and sobering warning from Jesus about who you and I are to fear. I think even though he is addressing a very serious issue, he is being very gentle at the same time. I mean, he is not, uh, when you think of the context, he's not threatening his enemies. Instead, he is warning his friends. In fact, that's exactly how he addresses them. He says, I tell you, my friends. Now, the only other time in the New Testament that we see Jesus refer to his disciples as his friends is in John 15, right before he goes to the cross. And so again, I, I think Jesus here is being very gentle with his disciples. And the reason I think he is being gentle is because over the next two sections, he is going to address every human's two greatest fears, which are the fear of man and the fear of death. You see, no matter what you are afraid of, I think ultimately if you trace it back far enough, it'll land on one of those two fears, either fear of man where you're afraid of being rejected or you're uh, worried about others' approval of you or the fear of death. And most likely the reason Jesus is bringing this up now is because at this point, the disciples are probably starting to become aware of the tension and the hostility that is growing between Jesus and the religious leaders, and he is wanting to warn them. He's wanting to prepare them and to help give them a proper perspective on all of this. And so again, he just starts out by, by uh, trying to help them who it is and who it is that they are to fear. And he basically just says, look, guys, don't fear the religious leaders. Don't fear those who are able to kill your body, because at the end of the day, that is the worst that they can do to you. But rather, let me give you some proper perspective here. The one you are to fear is the one who has the power not only to kill your body, but can cast you into hell. And at first glance, that might seem kind of harsh. It might seem like kind of striking even, but, but again, I don't think Jesus here is out to you know, scare the hell out of his disciples, right? I think he is anticipating that these guys will feel how they'll feel once the religious leaders totally turn on them. And once the religious leaders begin to persecute them and are trying, and he's trying to get out ahead of that. And he's trying to help them have a proper perspective of life and death as it relates to judgment and eternity. You see, really what Jesus is doing here in all three of these sections is he's trying to get the disciples, and I think therefore he's trying to get us to understand how our view and our understanding of judgment and eternity affect how we see things in the present moment. In other words, what I think Jesus is doing here in these sections is he's trying to help us have an eternal perspective. You see, people can, and they have for centuries, persecuted and even killed God's people. But what Jesus is reminding his disciples is that that is the best that they can do. He's saying, look, yes, it's true. They, there are people who are able to bring about your physical death, but they cannot affect your ultimate destiny. You see, for the Christian, this life is not all that there is. 
Now this is kind of a, a cheesy line, and perhaps you've heard it before, but, but some have said that for the Christian, this life is as close to hell as we will ever experience, but for the non-Christian, this life is as close to heaven as they will experience. Again, what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to reorient the disciples' perspective and their priorities on life and eternity. And again, I don't think he's trying to scare them. I don't think he's trying to threaten them with this, this uh, idea of hell. I mean, as I've already said, these are his disciples. These are not his enemies. And so rather than threatening them, I think he is trying to show them the power and the authority of God the Father and the power that he possesses over and against that of any human power. And because that's true, God is the one that we are to fear, not man. In other words, one way you could sum all of this up is that Jesus is arguing here that we fight fear with fear. Now that may sound strange, but let me try to uh, give you an example of how this works in real life. Uh, Edward Welsh in his book Running Scared illustrates this with a personal story. He writes, I had a tooth pulled recently. Afterward, the dentist indicated that there might be problems with the bone that held the tooth. Not a good thing. A legitimate cause for mild worry, wouldn't you say? About an hour after I came home, I received a call from a very good friend. He was calling from the doctor's office because they would not allow him to come home. His MRI showed a tumor, and they had him scheduled for emergency surgery the next day. At that point, my dental woes, of course, were no longer a concern. Walsh goes on to say, that's the way it works with fear. Sometimes the only thing that can dislodge, dislodge it is a greater fear. A woman with a fear of water will lose that fear if her child is in danger of drowning. If you really want to fight fear, learn to fear someone who captures your attention in such a way that your other fears suddenly seem pedestrian and unimportant. You see, if, it's only as we fear God, it's only as we have that proper perspective of who he is, that our other fears, fears of things like death or fear of man, diminish and even disappear. And when we talk about this idea of, of fearing God, we're not talking about some sort of hopeless terror, but rather the fear of God, it's a, a reverential awe. It's having a deep respect for who he is. Again, another way to, to think about it is that it's simply recognizing who you are and who others are in comparison to who he is. That's why Proverbs over and over again will say, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, we, you and I, we cannot understand things. We cannot have wisdom if we don't understand who God is and who we are in, in relationship to him. It's only as we do that that we properly understand things. Again, that's why having a proper perspective of reality is so important. And in just the case the disciples in the context of all of this are tempted to get the wrong idea about this God, the one we are to fear, this all-powerful one, Jesus immediately Right after this brings some words of encouragement and comfort. In verse 6, he says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, according to one commentator, sparrows were the cheapest things sold in the ancient market. And an Assyrian, or penny as it says there in the ESV, was the lowest valued Roman coin, and it was worth only one-sixteenth of a daily wage. 
I mean, it's kind of, as you think about this here, it's kind of like uh, recently I went into uh, PetSmart with my family, and as soon as we uh, walked in, they handed us the most adorable basset hound I have ever seen, a little puppy. And then they ushered us into one of those really stinky cubicles where you get to play with the dog, and it just smells like urine. And, and, uh, and so we're playing with the dog, and, and I know at this point some of you are like, Nick, what, what are you doing going into a PetSmart? We, we know how much you dislike animals, and yet we know how much of a sucker you are when it comes to your kids and, and buying them pets. And, and I would say you're right. It was not a wise choice. But once you see how much those puppies cost at PetSmart, it gets a lot easier to walk away and say, kids, not today, not ever, forget about it, right? I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's crazy. I, I remember an old coworker who uh, got a puppy from PetSmart. I remember him saying to me, he financed it. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, you, you financed a dog? Like, literally, you, you took out a loan and, like, you figured out an interest rate in order to buy a dog? Um, I, I don't know. I don't get it. But, but, so you don't have to worry about me, okay? I mean, the only thing I can afford from a PetSmart is, like, one of those gerbils. And I think a gerbil is a really good picture of what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, a gerbil at PetSmart is probably the equivalent of a sparrow sold at the market. And yet, Jesus' point here is that even something as cheap, something as seemingly insignificant as that, doesn't go unnoticed or uncared for by my Father. You know, the message would probably say something like, not one of those gerbils sold at PetSmart are forgotten by my Father. And if that wasn't enough encouragement, he follows it up by saying, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, I know the first part of that verse doesn't encourage some of you or doesn't impress you, given the lack of hair on your head. You're like, even my one-year-old grandson can count the number of hairs on my head because it's zero. But for the rest of us, it's an encouraging thought. I mean, all week long, as I've been styling my hair this week or combing, it, I'm like, that's amazing. He knows the number of hair on my head, at least for now, um, you know, or I, I don't know the number, at least for now, maybe one day. But anyway, uh, I think the other thing that's interesting here, and, and it's always, I don't know why it's always intrigued me, is that, that last thought where it talks about you are of more value than many sparrows. And the reason that uh, has always been intriguing to me is because I'm thinking to myself, now wait a second, he didn't say all the sparrows, he said many sparrows. So is there like a point where the amount of sparrows outweighs your value? It's like a thousand, you're, you're good, but a thousand and one, then it's like the sparrows are more value. No, I don't, I don't think that's what that means. I think he's making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying, look, if my father cares about these sparrows, these seemingly insignificant, these, the cheapest thing in the market, these things that are basically thrown away, how much more does he care about you? And so that's the second section of warnings and encouragement. But let's move on now to the last section uh, and in many ways, it's related to the previous one. Look again at verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Again, Jesus is dealing here with this issue of fear, whether it be fear of man or fear of rejection or even fear of persecution. And in these verses, he's just very straightforward. He's like, look, if you acknowledge me, if you confess me before men, then the I, the Son of Man, will confess you before all of heaven. But, however, conversely, he's warning them that if you deny me on earth, then I will deny you before all of heaven. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, in one sense, I just love how direct 
Jesus is here. I mean, he's not mincing words. He's being very frank and very clear. And yeah, we know that what he's calling us to here is not always easy. It's particularly not easy when you live in a culture that doesn't value Jesus or his kingdom, but it's even worse uh, when you live in a culture that not only doesn't value him, but is actually opposed and hostile to Jesus and his kingdom. And yet Jesus doesn't really give us an out here. I mean, he doesn't say, all right, guys, you don't, you don't have to confess me, or you, or you only have to confess me as long as it benefits you. You only have to confess me as long as it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, he doesn't say, guys, look, if people start to dislike you, or if they persecute you, or if they fire you, then, then, then you can opt out of this. He doesn't say that. In fact, the context of all of this is in the, the context of persecution. He's saying it will cost you. As we just saw, it may cost you your life. And again, I'm aware that this is not easy. I'm aware of the fact that being a Christian in America in 2019 is a lot harder than it was in 1950. I understand that being a Christian today does not garner you the favor of most people in our society. I think I've mentioned this book here before, but, but there was a book put out uh, two years ago by the Barna Research Group, and, and in it, it, it's called Good Faith, and in it, it has all of this new uh, data and research about how our society, about how people in the United States view Christianity and view Christians, and one of its main findings, because uh, this is the subtitle of the book, is that the two dominant perceptions about Christians in our society is that they are irrelevant and extreme. And they don't mean extreme in a good way, and like you're committed. They mean extreme in an ISIS kind of a way. In fact, one of the practices that people found uh, in the United States that they described as being extreme was evangelism. In other words, there's a growing majority in our society who would say that to try to convert someone to the Christian faith is considered an extremist act. Now, I'm sure if you push them, they, they would concede that flying planes into buildings is more extreme. But regardless, what people are saying currently is that evangelism is, an, is in itself an extreme religious act. And there's no doubt that you and I have begun to feel that. We've begun to feel that tension in our society right now. You see, I don't know about you, but I, I've noticed both in myself and in a lot of my friends, my Christian friends, that this, this growing hesit hesitancy to speak up about our Christian faith, whether it be in the workplace or in our neighborhoods or our schools or whatever. You see, I think a lot of Christians who maybe five or ten years ago had no problem waving their Christian banner are today just a little bit lowering it, who are today a little bit more hesitant. They're not so quick to speak up and to let everyone know they're a follower of Jesus. And yet what we find in this passage is that Jesus very bluntly here says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you. And so my question for you and my question for me is, are we acknowledging him? Are we consistently confessing him before men or have we let the fear of man, the fear of rejection or persecution begin to cause us to go silent? I ran across a question this week in one of the commentaries, and it's just sort of stuck with me, and, and the question was this. He said, if you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you, or would you be acquitted? You see, if, if, if your neighbor uh, was in the witness box as you're on trial for being a Christian, would they be able to say, would they be able to point to some evidence and say, yep, you know, Bill is absolutely a Christian. I heard him talking about Jesus the other day, and he tried to tell me about Jesus, and so, yes, this man is guilty. 
Or would, or would your neighbor say, you know, I think I remember him talking about, you know, serving at a soup kitchen once, or, or he talked about, you know, uh, going to church once, but that's really it. So I'm just really not sure. I don't, I don't know enough to, to really say that, yes, he's, he's guilty of that. I mean, what we see here in this passage is a very serious and sober warning from Jesus. But he's not done. In fact, let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is probably one of the most debated and discussed verses in all of the Bible. And certainly there are a number of interpretations and opinions about it. I think it's interesting, you know, how things that we were taught when we were little really stick with us and, and often can shape our, our beliefs. And, and with this verse, I remember uh, being hung up on it as a little kid. And I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, and, and the way that she explained it to me was that uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is when you make fun of the Holy Spirit. And I remember being really worried and terrified in that moment because just a few weeks previous to that, me and my friends had uh, been clowning around and pretending to baptize each other, and we were just sort of, in one sense, making fun of the Holy Spirit. And, and so I just remember being like distressed, like, oh my goodness, I've done it, I've done it, I'm in trouble. And fortunately, at some point, I just, because I kept asking questions about it, someone explained to me, if you're this worried about it, you most likely have not committed this sin, right? There's still conviction, there's still a, a softness to the Holy Spirit. And, and so, you know, I, I, I've come to understand that I don't think that's what the passage is talking about. You see, what I think and what many others have argued for is what Jesus is referring to here is a persistent and unrelenting resistance to the Holy Spirit's work, particularly his work of bringing conviction of sin and revealing the need for repentance and faith in Jesus. In other words, I think blaspheming the Holy Spirit is when someone permanently rejects the message of salvation. It's when someone is, is persistent in their unbelief. Now, you can, you can disagree with that, um, but that's, that's what I've come, uh, how I've come to understand it. Uh, let's finish up now by looking at verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. So Jesus here, he circles back around in these last two verses to this, this idea of the fear of man and the fear of death. And he very much paints in the disciples' mind a, a realistic picture of what might happen to them if they continue to follow him. And what he says is, look guys, you have just witnessed the hostility and the tension between me and the religious leaders. And if you want to follow me, you are going to have to face the same thing. And yet, when you are in those moments, those moments where they're accusing you, when you're standing on trial, I don't want you to, to worry about, in that moment, what you might say. I don't want you to prepare beforehand how you might defend yourself. And the reason I don't want you to do that is because you will not be alone. You will have the helper. I know it's going to look like in that moment you're all alone as you stand in the witness box, but believe me, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will help you. And so because that's true, don't worry about it ahead of time. Just trust me. Now, I don't know how the disciples took all of this in. But what I do know is that in just a few short months after, what, after Jesus made these statements, the disciples were going to have an opportunity to test it all out. 
I mean, if we remember the context of these words that are being spoken, Jesus is already on his way headed towards Jerusalem. This is already his final year of ministry. And in just a short amount of time, he is going to be put on trial, he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be put to death. And in that moment, all of the disciples' greatest fears are going to be exposed and tested. And Peter, during that time, is going to be asked if he knows Jesus. And yet because of the fear of man, and ultimately because of the fear of death, Peter is going to look someone in the eye and say, I do not know him. He's going to say, this man is not my friend, and he's going to do it three different times, but it's not just Peter. The rest of the disciples are going to scatter. They are going to run and hide. However, though, after that, though, there will be two events that will totally change these guys forever. There will be two events that take them from being cowards who deny Jesus to bold proclaimers of him. And the two events are, number one, the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason the resurrection was so important because it showed the disciples that Jesus really was who he said he was. The resurrection showed the disciples that Jesus really did have the authority and the power to defeat their number one fear, which was death. And so that would just completely change them. The second event which would totally change them and to give them a new perspective was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. I mean, remember what Jesus said right before this event, right before Pentecost in Acts 1.8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what reason? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so both of these events, the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, would take someone like Peter, who was completely bound by the fear of man, bound by the fear of death, and it would so free him to the point that just a couple months after Jesus' death, Peter could look the very same guys who had been responsible for crucifying Jesus and who had currently had him arrested, and he could look him in the eyes, and he could do as he does in Acts 4, which says this. And when the religious leaders had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So just, I mean, Jesus, I mean, Peter is so bold right here. I mean, again, these are the guys, it's Caiaphas, uh, the, the high priest, the ones who put Jesus to death. And now here is Peter, just a few months later, looking them in the eye and saying, you crucified him. And yet he was raised from the dead. And this is why this man has been healed. And it even says there in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. You see, everything that Jesus uh, teaches uh, in this passage in Luke is illustrated and lived out in Acts 4. And for you and I, that should encourage us because it shows us that it's possible to move from fear to faith. It shows us that it's possible to move from the fear of man to the fear of God. 
that it's possible to not only not deny Jesus, but to actually boldly proclaim him, to boldly proclaim the gospel message and to do it even when it costs you. You see, because of the love of God, because these men came to understand the, the one who uh, has the, the hairs on your head numbered, the one who doesn't forget the sparrows that are sold in the market, and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who is our helper, you and I can live lives that are free from the fear of man. We can live lives that are free from the fear of death, and instead, we can live lives that are marked by the fear of the Lord. And that's why I, when I started this message, I said, today's title really can be read two different ways, the power of fear. That can either be negative or positive, and the thing that makes the difference is who or what you fear. You see, if you fear man, if you fear death, then that fear will cloud your judgment. That fear will affect your priority and your perspective on life. It will affect how, how you see your, your, uh, your, your life now in the present, and you will not remember uh, it in light of eternity. And as a result, uh, it will most likely be negative in your life. But if you fear God, if you focus on uh, eternity and the life to come, if you focus on all that Jesus has purchased for you in his death and his resurrection, then you will be in a positive way impacted by the power of fear. You will actually be fueled with the power from the fear of God. And in doing so, you and I will be able to live out an authentic Christian life. One that is marked out by boldness, one that is free from hypocrisy, one that is free from the fear of man, free from the fear of persecution or discomfort, and ultimately one that is free from the fear of death. But again, we will only get to that place as we fear God, as we focus on eternity, as we remember and meditate on his goodness and his grace and the, the promises that he has made us in the scriptures, and as we depend on the Holy Spirit to help us. In those moments, those, those trying moments when we're afraid to depend on him to say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to say? This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling you and he's calling me and he's calling us as a church to be men and women who are not afraid of anything other than the fear of the Lord. There's a verse in uh, Psalm 86, 11. It's a prayer, actually, of David. And so I just want to close here by by praying and asking the Lord to do this in us. You see, because here's what I know. Apart from the fear of the Lord, you and I are going to continue to live lives that are marked by fear of other things. And so let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do this work. It says this in Psalm 86, 11. Will you bow your heads? Father, would you give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name? Lord, that is our prayer this morning. Give us an undivided heart that we might fear your name. Holy Spirit, would you in this moment teach us the fear of the Lord? Lord, we confess we are often bound by fear of lesser things. Lord, we are often controlled and, and we ought, we so, we're so quick to lose perspective. Lord, we're so quick to hold on to this life. And to forget, Lord, that we have a life to come. To forget, Lord, that you, Jesus, purchased for us eternity with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask now, in this moment, would you give us an undivided heart, a heart to fear your name.
And in doing so, would you free us from the fear of other things? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.